Hello everyone, welcome to Polarities. Quick update before we get to this interview today on future episodes. We're in the middle of a series on the relationships between religion and political divisions. And while I was hoping episode 3 would be ready to stuff in your digital stocking, it looks like that's no longer going to be the case. But I'm looking forward to bringing you both episodes 3 and 4 early in the new year. And the two episodes are distinct but share a unique bond, both taking a look but at very different angles at Buddhism's role in a hyper-connected and maybe also disconnected world. In the meantime, here's another bonus interview. In episode 2, we looked at humanitarian volunteers in Arizona's borderlands and the role religion played in their criminal defense. I also released an interview I did with Douglas Massey who talked about the broader history of the US-Mexico border. Today I want to expand out the other side of that story, how religion and activism intersect, and how religious organizations founded on basic principles of the sanctity of life brush up against the legal system and the government. Jesse Harvey is a harm reduction activist on the front lines of the opioid crisis in Portland, Maine. Among other advocacy work, he's also the founder of the Church of Safe Injection, an inclusive organization that follows what they call the gospel of harm reduction. And back when the church started, Jesse was driving around smaller counties in Maine, giving out clean syringes to drug users out of his car. So part of our conversation is about the role of the church and religion in general in preventing overdose deaths, or what he calls opioid poisoning. But we also talk about how the way we look at and talk about legal and illegal drugs is socially and politically prescribed. And we talk a lot about Jesse's own history with drugs, which he is very open about. And however you feel about the dangers of drugs like opioids, I think the power of this conversation is to show, at least for me, how deeply ingrained our moral judgments about drug users are and how that moral aversion or even repulsion often plays into the ways we enact policy. Policies that often directly or indirectly lead to preventable deaths from drug use. I want to also mention, Jesse has recently been in some fairly serious legal trouble related to his own personal treatment and struggles. And he did talk to me about it, and while on the surface at least, the charges appear to be yet another example of an extremely unjust and punitive approach to drug use. I've chosen not to include that part of the conversation while the case is still pending and I don't have enough information, but I will keep you updated on it in the future. Enjoy this show and if you like it please leave a rating or review on iTunes and happy holidays. Talk a little bit about the opioid epidemic, and particularly where you're from, Maine, particularly Mm -hmm. in that area. And I know the thing that I hear a lot is that it affects people of all backgrounds across socioeconomic status, race, gender, etc. So kind of set the background for me. Maine is, I forget some of the, some of the statistics now, but um, 300 and I believe it was 372 people died in, uh, f- from opiate poisoning in, uh, in 2018. Um, and then that number sort of dropped off a little bit in 2019. But in the Northeast especially, I think 
um, deaths due to opiate poisoning have been increasing at a at a crazy rate, and that's why we keep seeing headlines saying things like saying all sorts of stuff about overdoses, about what you just said, uh, that it affects people of all uh, of all backgrounds, all socioeconomic, all races, all all uh, all everything. Uh, I'm I'm sort of going to use a lot of the medical language as we talk. Um, OUD, substance use disorder, all that. But but I do want to point out that um, I don't want to over pathologize it you know it's Mm. it's, i think there's a there's a risk in doing that and at the end of the day a lot of these sort of medical term you know like substance use disorder it ends up being very helpful for for billing reasons you know insurance billing reasons and i'm not saying i'm not going to say that it's not a mental illness or that the whole mental illness concept is not valid you know but i'm i am going to say you know some a lot of people who who use drugs they use drugs in response to very real reasons and very real f- phenomena in their life whatever it may be depression anxiety bubble and and even those as i just said those i don't want to sort of pathologize those you know somebody who uses drugs or somebody who is depressed or sad it it may just be a a normal reaction to abnormal events you know it might be Mm. the shit in their life that's messed up it's not that they're messed up you know it's it's that everything around them maybe is um is bad right there's bigger causes i mean how do you think society is sick in a way that drives people to opioid addiction if somebody is marginalized to the point that they have to engage in cr- criminal behaviors um, to, or if they're marginalized to the point that that they're in and out of the hospital or you know anything that that's unpleasant in somebody's life that's the result of sort of this ostracization at the end of the day um it, it makes a hundred percent total sense for for somebody to self-medicate using using drugs um but that's not to say but i but i don't want to say that the that the only use of heroin or or fentanyl or other potentially dangerous um drugs are i don't want to say that it's only self-medication because some people are just using are are using it recreationally and they're using it recreationally and safely and it could be a victimless crime is there actually a safe way to use opioids though i mean my understanding of fentanyl is that it's so powerful in such small doses that it becomes very very difficult to control dosage right and and there are fentanyl analogs that are even even more dangerous than than fentanyl and it should be pointed out that the only reason that the market's heroin supply is tainted with fentanyl and other dangerous products is due to is due to the prohibition of you know heroin is is much better than fentanyl nobody nobody wants fent in their in their shit you know it right. heroin heroin lasts longer it feels better you know the reason heroin is being put into stuff is is to sort of minimize um, is to is to to make the you know if I was selling if I was selling the shit I would I would want to keep um, less of it on me you know and 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 fentanyl obviously but having sort of the same effects but being so much more potent and lethal it makes sense to carry around a a smaller amount than than a larger amount um it's prohibition that's directly responsible for the introduction of fentanyl and all its analogs into our into our heroin supply
tell me a bit about your background and and what led you into advocacy. Yeah. So so I'm a person who who uses drugs. I'm a person who used drugs in the past. You know, since the age of 14, I've had a relationship with substances um, that get me messed up. That to the outside observer, they might say, "Oh, like these drugs, like." Master of Lear. I don't know if we're allowed to swear on this show, so I've been saying yeah, master. Go ahead, it's fine. <laughs> these drugs fucked your life up, you know, these drugs. But at the end of the day, when I, when I think about it a little more, there are some drugs in my life that I know I shouldn't use, I, I don't, or that I don't want to use, and sometimes like end up using them anyway. Um, but there are a lot of drugs in my life that I could use totally safely. For example, cannabis. I don't have a, a problem with it. And there are people who, you know, they smoke weed and their lives are fine. They use Coke and their lives are fine. You know, and they, they could do it for decades or for, for their whole life and not really encounter any negative repercussions. But besides, I should point out, sometimes the only negative repercussions of drug use are legal ones due to the fact that we live in a system that has needlessly and counterproductively bans certain substances besides bullshit charges there's sometimes very very little or nothing as far as negative consequences that people might face for the drug use but did at some point you decide that the negative consequences were outweighing the yeah. Yeah, whatever yeah, whatever benefits or, or sort of neutral effects yeah. in in answer to your question I, I have in the past my, my alcohol use. I've gotten carried away with it. I've, I've drank too much. I've done things that I that I really regret, you know, like driving under the influence of alcohol. And so I did seek treatment, you know. I, but the interesting thing with me is that opiates, I, I've used them many times, plenty of times, including injecting them, including fentanyl, inclu and I've never developed such a strong relationship with them you know even though i've done them sometimes i've done them for like days or, or weeks at a time you know and and not and then i just come out i just leave it behind i just walk away from from it whereas i understand that some people they end up depending a lot on it becoming very dependent on it um and for me it was it was alcohol that became that the only time that in my life that i've really experienced withdrawals serious withdrawals you know DTs, delirium tremens, I was hallucinating, not knowing what was going on, not knowing where it was, my body was shaking. What's alcohol? The, the legal drug, <laughs> which is very strange. Um, and that was maybe, that was in 20, oh, I forget when that was, 2014, maybe. Uh, I was uh, 22 or something. And yeah, I just developed an unhealthy relationship with the drug. But you know, one thing that I'm, that I grow increasingly worried about, it's almost like now society has forgotten about the person who has an alcohol use disorder. You know, alcohol um, causes more deaths per year than opiates, you know, and I almost feel like we're, we're focused too much now on opiates and heroin and fentanyl. Not that we should scale back any naloxone distribution programs or anything like that, but that we should be, we should expand our scope a little bit to include um, people who may use other drugs, uh, who are currently sort of grant money is not going towards right now, who can't get into treatment as easily as somebody with an opioid use disorder. Do 
Do you think on a legal level that drugs should only be regulated as alcohol is? Like, should it be fully legalized for recreational purposes even? I've wondered for a while, you know, between decriminalization as one option and legalization and regulation as the other. For, for a while, I was really sort of trying to debate which one would be ideal, but I really think legalization and regulation of all drugs is is really the only thing that would make sense. I mean, when I was in high school, it was easier to get an oxy or a bag of heroin than it was to get alcohol. So I think legalizing it and regulating it really, for starters, all of a sudden, it wouldn't be cartels making making money and terrorist organizations making money. It would be the U.S. government or, or state governments, local governments making this additional revenue and being able to provide more services or, or you know, or more tax breaks or, or whatever to, to the average American person. I mean, if we look at the results of prohibition of alcohol in, in the 1930s, it was disastrous. People's health deteriorated and crime, you know, went up and government revenues went down. You know, like it was exactly the opposite of anything that society would want. Just like the war on drugs right now, prohibition of drugs produces the exact opposite results of anything that society would want. And I think it's worth mentioning that everybody knows and accepts this, that prohibition was a failure and the idea of banning alcohol or even really effectively limiting it is a political non-starter in Canada or the U.S. or any developed country I know, you know, developed secular country. Like in the U.S., we have the Controlled Substances Act of 1970 or whenever it was introduced that, that says, you know, any drug that it's going to be banned entirely. It's going to be what's called Schedule 1 if, and there are two criteria, uh, it poses no legitimate health benefit, and number two is it poses serious risk. And I've often thought, like, alcohol, can we not ask a senator or the president or can we not ask them what, what health benefit does alcohol produce? And And is it not... Is it damaging to the person, you know, even if they said no, you know, or it does have a legitimate effect on your health and it's not entirely uh, dangerous and damaging to the person, it would fall somewhere along these lists of schedules. It's crazy that alcohol is nowhere on this list. It's not in any of those schedules, even though it kills more people than, than do opiates. And I think also another report that I read was uh, trying to measure social harm in general, not just to the user, but for example, alcohol users are more likely to uh, uh, cause violence or social harm in other ways to to people outside of themselves. And, and they kind of measured all of those things along with addiction and just found that alcohol's harms were vastly outweighing even heroin. Yeah. See, it's not like I'll, I'll get overly carried away with it and say drugs are great, everybody can use them, they're fine. You know, they, they do sometimes pose a very real risk to people like alcohol, you know, alcohol and other drugs. They do sometimes, they, they do pose dangers and those dangers need to be sort of mitigated through proactive and well-designed programs and laws and systems that address them more effectively than what we have, you know, now total prohibition and criminalization, which ends up just, just, just putting you in more risk, you know? Right. Yeah. And 
I think my point there was really, I think what resonates with me with what you're saying is, you know, we can imagine in an age where we might look at people who use drugs and seek treatment for it in the same way that, you know, we live in a really wellness obsessed culture and the same reasons why someone might go to a nutritionalist or I might just decide I'm drinking too much caffeine, uh, which is completely true in my case, or I'm I'm not eating well. Nobody stigmatizes your It's the only way that makes sense is if we evaluate its harms and its and its benefits. Every drug should be evaluated this along the same criteria. You know, if it's if it's psychoactive, it's if it's mood altering, if it uh, if it produces potentially negative effects, there's there's no reason to to consider any of them uh, differently from from the other. There's also no reason to consider different routes of administration uh, differently. You know, it would be uh, wise for the system to sort of evaluate, to warn, to recommend, to recommend to users you know, this route of administration. Injection might be much more dangerous than this route. You know, sublingual or oral and then to explain what the what the dangers are. I think, you know, it's not so much heroin and fentanyl that are killing people. I think we do drug users a disservice when we say it, the heroin or the fentanyl killed them. You know, like, no, like there, are, there's a way that you can use any drug and not die. You know, it's, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a structural issue. It's a problem that, that exists because the system is designed in such a way to allow it to exist. You know, people wouldn't be dying if we had, for example, uh, safe consumption sites where people could use drugs, inject drugs, whatever, smoke drugs, whatever, and there and there were medical professionals and, and others there who could not only reverse opiate poisoning or uh, or could help mitigate the effects of any other any other drugs, but um, could also sort of uh, build relationships with folks and and if if they were so interested, get them into treatment, get them into possibly long term recovery. You know, it, it's the studies all show that safe consumption sites, for example, as a, as a harm reduction technique, do not increase drug use, but actually, you know, drug use in the community stays at either the same rate or even over time actually decreases, you know, because a safe consumption site, it ends up functioning more like, you know, a resource in the community through which people who use drugs can, can sort of build relationships with medical and, and other professionals to eventually, if they want, if they, if they want to enter treatment or or through some other way get into recovery. People don't have, you know, it doesn't have to be through treatment, you know, pharmaceutical or or counseling or whatever that people enter recovery. Um, Do you think that it's possible to for a site like that to function both as a place to safely use drugs, but also as a form of treatment, whether that's f formal treatment, as you said, maybe not, but a kind of informal place where... They yeah. might get the help they need. I think there are studies on the the effectiveness of uh, safe consumption sites with co-located 
you know, detox or re rehabilitation, you know, of some sort. I mean, it is very promising. And I think it makes total sense that it is promising, uh, that the results are, prom are very promising from, uh, you know, having a space that people can enter, you know, in, in the mindset that, hey, I want to use drugs. But then that, uh, you know, the concept of harm reduction is reducing the harms to the person. So, so total abstinence is on the scale of harm reduction. You know, we can picture it being all the way to the left, you, you know, and then all the way to the right, we can picture multiple drug, you know, injections of drugs per day, uh, mixing drugs with other drugs, using using uh, syringes that are not sterile or somebody else. So, so there's this spectrum, right? And somebody might enter, you know, as a safe consumption facility, for, for example, being all the way at the right end of the scale. And so the, the whole purpose of, of a facility like this is just to help people be as much towards the left side of the scale as possible. You, you know, not using alone, using in a space where there are people who, who could reverse potential uh, opiate poisoning, um, not using syringes that somebody else may have used that's what the whole the whole reason for such a facility would be so is gradual progression towards the left end of the scale if that's what the person wanted you know we're not trying to coerce anybody into recovery treatment whatever that's why we've seen people die for for all these decades is because drugs are illegal and if you use them you're a shit bag and we'll send you to prison not treatment that hasn't been working. It hasn't been working out for society. Talk to me a bit about your advocacy work then. How did you get into that? I'm the founder of, of a few organizations, Journey House Recovery in Maine, which I'm no longer affiliated with, um, but which I opened six recovery houses and helped over 200 people get off the streets and into housing for some, some period of time. You know, some of them it was months and maybe the rest of their life. And some people it was just a day or two. That's the nature of people's drug use of recovery of the industry. Um, I'm also the founder of Portland OPS, Overdose Prevention Society, uh, which advocated for a safe, safe consumption space in Portland, Maine, where I live. Uh, and I'm also the founder, most recently, of the Church of Safe Injection, which it might sound crazy to people, um, especially people coming from very traditional uh, faith backgrounds, you know, but the easiest way I've, I've come up with to sort of ask people and to, tr to try to win over hearts and minds to harm reduction and safe injection is, you know, what's, what's the opposite of safe injection? It, it, it's unsafe injection. It's, you know, it's using dirty needles. It's using too much. It's using drugs that may be cut with something dangerous that you didn't know it was cut with. That's unsafe injection. And that's the opposite. And it kills people or it causes disease. And it certainly costs taxpayers a lot of money, you know, at the end of the year. There's no valid reason that we should have unsafe injection in anywhere in the world, you know? If we know the answer, if we have the resources to prevent unsafe injection and increased HIV, increased hep C, increased cases of, you know, skin and, and soft tissue infections and more deaths, and we know how to prevent that all, why would we not, you know? It sounds very, um, 
it sounds more political than religious, right? But the church of safe injection, very simply put, our religious belief, the, the thing that we focus on, because some of us are drug users, we, we say, you know, a person who uses drugs does not, they don't need to die any sooner than a person who does not use drugs. You know, society does not need to you, you know, lay out an early grave for them. So I think most people can understand the humanitarian reasons that you've described, but what makes it religious in your opinion? You know, I, um, I was baptized Catholic. I went through uh, Sunday school and confirmation. I've attended Episcopalian services. Uh, I've been to a variety of different different churches, especially when I'm in or seeking recovery. You know, and if if I was ever using uh, a twelve step program, you know, who that encourages you know connection with the higher power then it might make sense for me to, to really try to ask myself, what is my higher power? Who, who are they? And to connect us with that, that entity. The Church of Safe Injection, it functions, we don't have a physical property, at least yet, at least not the branch of the church that exists in Portland, Maine, you know, but, but what we believe in doesn't really differ at all from what any other religion differs in. You know, in, in fact, it's, is almost the same, the same thing, you know, that people have inherent dignity and worth and that their lives should be respected, valued, you know, uh, that their unnecessary deaths should be prevented, you know, that, that we should celebrate life. Did you ever determine or come to some answer about what your higher power might be? I, I guess I'm asking more on a personal level. No, I, I appreciate it. To be honest with you, I don't think I'll ever 100% know who, who or what my higher power is. And, uh, and I, I don't know necessarily that I have to know who or what it is. It, you know, it might not be a person or an entity, and it might just be, you know, a, a set of ideas or theories or rules or goals or guides. If, if I want to live my life according to X, Y, or Z, then it, it's useful for me to keep looking for the the the, the person, the entity, the 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 idea, whatever you want to call that higher power. Members of our of the Church of Safe Injection, we call ourselves Safe Injectionists, just because it's like you know Christian or Muslim, or it's a word that describes what what we're about. We have a specific. A specific role, a specific function, a specific background ourselves of, you know, of, of what we have done or have used or have, or, you know, or had family who have done or have used or have died. We're a very, we're a very sort of specific church, but there are tons of very specific churches, you know, and they are federally recognized churches, just like we are, you know, we're a federally recognized 501c3 nonprofit church, charity, whatever, the same as any other, uh, as any other. What are your actual, like, practical activities with the Church of Safe Injection? Like, what do you do on a day-to-day -day basis? Different branches of the church do different things. You know, like, some of them might have a physical building that they can meet at. They, they can get together. They can have, you know, what would be called, maybe called mass in the, in the equivalent of uh, another church. Others might not have a physical space, but might 
out of the back of their car, the way I used to do, distribute, um, you know, naloxone, which is the, the medication that reverses opiate poisoning, or, you know, out of the back of their car might exchange syringes, you know. Right. So you're saying that individual groups might do this or that. How does the organization work? Are people use that name freely? Like, and who's using it? Who's, who's kind of adopting the Church of Safe Injection name? People who use drugs, people who know people who use drugs, people whose family members use drugs, people who have experienced some law, some unnecessary death in their life of somebody who uses uses drugs and shouldn't have died. Those are the people who who, who join this church, you know, who, who become members of our congregation. We're an interfaith church that gladly welcomes people of all backgrounds, including, you know, agnostics and atheists. If they want to join this church, they're more than welcome to. And like I said, different branches do different things. And it's sort of been difficult to keep track of all the branches because it's expanded so rapidly but but at the same time now you know some branches have either dropped off or not necessarily kept in touch with our current board of directors and uh and me you know who sort of serve as uh at the national at the international level sort of i don't want to say leaders because i'm not a leader i'm just you know i'm just sort of the person who keeps track of all the I mean, I did found it, but I, right now I'm just sort of the person. There is no leader. It's just I'm just the person who keeps track of a lot of data. I do a lot of secretarial work, um, but it's it's individual branches, individual people who are doing the real work out on the out on the front lines. You know, delivering services to to people who need it. Who their state isn't doing it. You know, the hospitals in their area are not doing it. They're doing it. It's it's crazy when you when you really think about it that. At 9 p.m. some night, you know, uh, somebody who uses drugs who needs healthcare services is getting their services out of the back of somebody's car instead of instead of at a hospital inside in a warm place that is currently open, you know, that that is providing emergency room and other services, but they're not providing any services for people who use drugs. And if a person who uses drugs shows up in the emergency room because of opiate poisoning or something else, their opiate poisoning might be reversed, but they most likely will not get a prescription or, or any sort of information about a prescription for Suboxone or Methadone or Naltrexone, Naloxone. The medications that are approved for treatment, you know, like I've, I've OD'd in so many states and I've seen these, these discharge instructions that don't really treat me like, like a human being or like, a, like somebody else with, with a health condition who, who goes into a hospital. They, they just sort of, yeah, you, you almost died or you did die and we, and we reversed it, and now you're alive. Like, call call this number if you want help. You know, it's it's crazy. So, in the state of Maine, you you are giving out um, syringes. Is that right? And did you had some kind of legal trouble with that like there are laws against handing yeah. out syringes 
there, there are these laws that, that say you can only possess 10 syringes. If you possess any more than that, you're, you, you could face a misdemeanor. And the only people who are legally recognized to, to carry more than 10 syringes, you know, are people with a, with a prescription for it or entities who are state-recognized uh, needle exchange programs. And there's until recently, there were only three of them in this whole state of 16 counties. It's a huge state, too. It's not, you know, it takes me five hours to drive all the way up north to, to, to one of the most northern counties. And it's only had three needle exchanges in the whole, you know, in the whole state until relatively recently when two or three more needle exchanges have opened. There's still really no way for people to access safe you know safer supplies um like tourniquets um cookers cottons uh naloxone you know and of course sterile syringes so these places that are do needle exchange they basically exchange a sterile needle for a dirty one is that correct Mm -hmm. so you go out and you do kind of a similar thing do you think that there's a good reason to have, obviously, as you said, there's not enough service, especially in smaller cities or counties in Maine, but do you think there's a good reason to have a kind of legal regulatory process before you can do that? I mean, are there possible risks to doing this? You're right. In the same way that we regulate our hamburgers, you know, or our whatever, you know, it, it makes sense to regulate some things in society and maybe syringe exchange is indeed one of them, but it doesn't make sense to regulate it to the point that there are only three in the whole state, you know, and, and Maine is a state that has frequently made the news for being a state whose, you know, rates of opiate poisoning are very high and our per capita rate of opiate poisoning was extremely high compared to many other states. Are you familiar with some of the other recent cases where activists or people working in similar kinds of advocacy have been tried for breaking the law and used religious defenses? Yeah, I forget the name of it, but in the desert, the No More Deaths volunteers? Yeah, and there's really... If if somebody believes something, it's their belief, it's their conviction, it's their... It, it it amounts to what you could call a religion or a faith, you know, or a, and if if our constitution does indeed allow people to, I should preface it by saying it's unfortunate that you should ever need some sort of religious or spiritual defense to, to helping people, to saving lives, to improving society. It, it's kind of absurd to think that you would ever, if you need such a, you shouldn't need it. You know, it should be a service that's offered anyway by society, you know, or by the government, by, you know, but it's not. (laughs) And we're not just trying, we're not just trying to exploit some loophole, like, oh, let's get religious. We're not, we're not just, it's not a loophole. It's people's lives. It's free. It's, it's the fact that people are dying for no good reason. (laughs) They could easily be saved. And it's what we believe in, you know? And how is that a loophole? What? That's we're trying to save people's lives. Right. What is your relationship with other churches, like the Christian community in particular? 
all the churches that we've sort of been affiliated with or that, that I've spoken at, I've delivered the guest lecture, usually on the topic of opiates and opiate po unnecessary opiate poisoning. It's been um, Unitarian Universal Universalist churches, UU churches, which I myself attend UU service every, every Sunday at 10 a.m., unless Unitarian Universalists have been the most welcoming towards our ideas towards our faith, towards members of our congregation. I'm not preclude. I'm not saying other faiths won't. You know, I, I went to and graduated from a Catholic uh, college, King's College in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania, and they invited me back to speak. Uh, you know, on a panel about my work at at both Journey House and the Church of Safe Injection. You know, and talk about what harm reduction means, how it aligns with Catholic social values. But apart from that church, have you have you had any pushback? I have heard that a lot of um, neighboring churches, a lot of people who used to know me in the sense of running sober houses, who now know me in the sense of providing syringes to people who use drugs, you know, they they, um, they make a lot of not only negative and incorrect assumptions, but also, yeah, what you're saying, negative um statement it's not it's not really made public but i i have heard you know that in private people are saying that what, what our church does is not does not align with any sort of religious values and that's i'd love to have a debate you know is somebody mm. should schedule like a presidential debate <laughs> a religious debate yeah i would i would listen to that yeah um one of the most interesting things i encountered researching a bit about this was using even ceremonies or, or sacraments from the church, but geared towards harm reduction, like particularly yeah. talking about like uh, Narcan as an almost like a sacrament, uh, yeah. a religious sacrament. No, I mean, I mean, it is. And and that's what I acknowledge that in, you know, in the back of my, in my car, if I'm exchanging the syringes, I will call. I will say in the long, you know, it's a sacrament. It's it's if if our, one of our main messages and one of our main ideas, one of our main beliefs is that you know people who use drugs don't deserve to die, then there's no reason that uh, wine should play any more of of a role than naloxone should, which is similarly another liquid. Just usually administer differently. It, in fact, saves the person's life, unlike one. Thank you very much, Jesse. I really appreciate this conversation. Have a good one. Thanks for the call.